exceptionally well-trodden territory these days. <laughs> you <laughs> go where you want. A lot to talk about. Hey, guys. It's Amna Nawaz. I am live here in New York, and I'm really, really pleased to be joined by New York Times best-selling author Joel Rosenberg. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be here, Amna. Thank you. We should mention your new book on display here, Without Warning, is just out now, right? Yes, yeah, just on Tuesday it released. Fabulous. This is the third in a series about a man named J.B. Collins, right. right? For everyone who isn't familiar with the series, tell us a little bit about this character and about sure. the theme through these books. Sure. J.B. Collins is a New York Times foreign correspondent, mm -hmm. a war correspondent. Uh, he is not part of the fake news team. He, You know, this guy is a guy who hunts for stories. He hears a rumor that ISIS, the Islamic State, has mm -hmm. captured chemical weapons in Syria and is planning some sort of genocidal attack. Mm -hmm. But it's a rumor, right? He can't He's a, he's a good journalist. <laughs> he can't print it unless he can confirm it. Right. So as the series begins, and by the way, you can read with, without warning as a standalone. Okay. But if you, you don't double have to back, read the first two. You don't have to, but you start at the beginning with a novel called The Third Target. Mm -hmm. Collins is heading into Syria with two colleagues, a hellish, war-torn Syria, to try to track down an ISIS commander and get him on the record. Do you have the weapons or don't you? Mm -hmm. Assuming that they'll want to own up to it as right. a way of threatening and terrifying the world. That's how the novel begins, mm -hmm. uh, the series begins. And w as we get to Without Warning, this is a book about what if ISIS doesn't simply try to attack people you know, and, and launch genocide in the Middle East, mm -hmm. what if they come here? And uh, when I began writing this in 2013, nobody, myself included, had really heard of ISIS. Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was starting to morph into something new. Mm -hmm. I had just finished a series about Iran's nuclear weapons, and, uh, and so I thought, well, I need I need new enemies, right? I'm a thriller writer, for crying out loud. So I went to two former CIA directors mm -hmm. and the former head of Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, and I said, what keeps you guys up at night? What are you worrying about? Right. And they said, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's, yeah. it's turning into something much more dangerous. Mm -hmm. So that set me into motion. Now, as you know, uh, 2014, January, uh, President Obama says, no, no, you know, this is not a real serious threat. They're a, ISIS is a JV team. We don't need to worry about them. Mm -hmm. We're pretty much taking care of Al-Qaeda. And I was deep into writing this novel, and I'm like, well, I'm hearing different, but, you know, he's the president. But by that summer, ISIS had captured 40% of Iraq and mm -hmm. had started an actual systematic genocide against Shia Muslims, against Christians, against Yazidis. And here we are today uh, trying to... Are we going to win? Are we going to lose? I, I, you know, that's that's. Uh, I'm writing so about I'm a fiction, curious. but it it blew up much faster than I had anticipated. Well, that anticipated. that's what I'm curious about. It is fiction, right? You write thrillers, yeah, they're, they're based in right. in reality or inspired by real right. events. We should well, worst say. case scenarios that could happen. Right. We just pray that they do not happen. But uh, but you. So this is the third in the series. The first yeah. one was October 2015, right? right? Then October 2016. Right. Now this one. So you have been pushing them out at a clip. Well, right? you know, I, that's I'll, a pretty good pace. Thank you. Well, I'm a failed political consultant. <laughs> Everyone I ever worked for in Washington lost, so I, you know, I started to make things up for a living. It turns out there is, there is a, there is a title for that: novelist. <laughs> you know, so, but that, I, I do wonder about that because these, a lot of your books, dating back to 2002, yeah, really, right. have been focused in this sort of genre, right? right. Which is looking at how um, Islamic terror affects Western nations. Or Radical that, Islamic. Radical to be Islamic clear, right. uh, you know, I, yes, I'm Jewish, mm -hmm. I'm an evangelical, I'm a dual U.S. Israeli citizen, mm -hmm. so I got a lot of pieces that someone might 
tag me, I'm not saying that you were about to do that, but I'm just saying people think, well, you write about all these terror thrillers, and so are you against Islam? And actually, I have Muslim characters that are good guys and bad guys, Jewish people that are good guys and bad guys. Like the well, real world. We are the, like the real world. Mm -hmm. I'm not, um, I'm really concerned about Islamophobia mm -hmm. because I think that all the data shows 90 plus percent of Muslims worldwide, as they've been polled for um, almost 15 years now, are, are, are very clearly not supportive of violence against innocent civilians. Mm -hmm. But the polling is pretty clear that between 7 and 10 percent will tell pollsters openly. I support the violence of the Islamic State, or I support suicide bombing against um, against civilians. So that's that's the vast majority being against that. That's seven to ten percent maybe being support. Doesn't mean they all engage in violence, but that's the pool from which uh, the radical terrorist groups and states are drawing. Mm -hmm. and, and part of what I'm trying to do is keep people up all night, admittedly, with you know an edge of the seat, you know, adrenaline pumping thriller. But it's also to sort of take people into this world mm -hmm. where they don't really expect to be learning things because they're, you know, it's like, you know, my chapters are short. Right. They're sort of like Pringles. You, you hopefully can't eat just one. I get people <laughs> tweeting. Yeah, well, exactly. I get people tweeting me at five um, in the morning saying, yeah. curse you. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get to work in an hour. But I'm also trying to educate. Yeah. Um, and what is it that's that you a hope people me. take away from Because you, you're putting a journalist at the center of it, right? right? So the, there's a mission of like fact finding, right. there's a mission of, of confirming things that you believe to be true. J.B. Collins, from what I've read, is more of like an activist journalist, though, right? He's he, like, he takes on a very involved role. He does. Much he, more so than most journalists well, would I think. <laughs> well, but war correspondent is a different breed. They call themselves a tribe, right? And they tend to be addicted to the adrenaline rush yeah. of going into battle, you know, and they are the sort of journalistic equivalent, I would say, of being a New York City police officer or firefighter where, you know, something bad happens, they go into danger. Right. And most of us, like, hey, watch it on television, report from a studio, but these guys want to go into Syria. They want to go into Iraq. They want to meet an ISIS commander right. and get the scoop, right? That's what Collins is. Mm -hmm. But as things unfold, he gets drawn into this story. And I think what's interesting from, from a, a novelist perspective is most people are never going to go to Syria. They're not going to go into Iraq. Right. They're, but they know they ought to know more about it, but mm -hmm. they don't want to read a 900-page book on the history of Syria or is radical Islamic terrorism. They want to go on a high-speed adventure ride. Mm -hmm. And this is a first-person series. So you are in the character's head. Yeah. You are going into harm's way with him. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it from the safety of uh, <laughs> you know, your own home. Um, I find it a fascinating way, again, as a reporter, he, he, you're, he's unpacking things as he goes. He's right. asking questions. He's being told lies. He's sifting through. He's meeting with spies. He's getting leaks. But he's got to sift through what is true. Mm -hmm. And I think in this age of fighting this radical Islamic terror, or Islamist, really, it's a, it's a, it's a political ideology, what's true? What is a threat and what isn't? Mm -hmm. Who are the, our allies? And uh, What do you hope? You said you, you hope people who yeah. may not want to read an, a 900-page tome on, on the history of Syria, which, by the way, I would still recommend you read if yes, you're interested I agree. in yes. learning something <laughs> I like to read those type of books. Yeah. Uh, but what is it you hope people will learn yeah. from, from reading your books, from well, reading first, the series? The, the fact that ISIS is not like any terror organization that we've ever had. The, the leaders of ISIS, yes, they're radicals, uh, but this is something different. 
they actually are driven not just by a radical interpretation of Islam, but by an apocalyptic interpretation. They Is believe, the yeah, they believe that if they commit genocide and create a world of chaos and carnage, that and, and they establish the caliphate, the Islamic kingdom, that w that will hasten. It will it will accelerate the coming of the so-called Islamic Messiah, known as the Mahdi, and he will and he'll come with Jesus. Jesus in this eschatology, this end times theology, is going to force all infidels to convert or die. He, Jesus is the deputy in this this worldview. And they're going to establish a global uh, Islamic he's a kingdom. In other words, right? yes, yeah, he's a, it's, it's so, in Islam. Exactly. Yeah. So, this is not something we've ever experienced before. A, a, a terror regime that's driven by trying to bring about the end of days. That's that's their language. That most people don't know that. And if you talk to experts and you read the speeches by Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, this is a, this is this guy's cut from different cloth. He, he, he believes things that most Muslims don't believe, thank God, and, and that the, the rest of us don't believe. We can all have our own views, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, about what we think the end of days might look like and mm. the establishment of peace and justice. We want that. But we don't want to commit genocide to bring it about. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi does. Do you think that so, he's different because he is making uh, literal and direct references to to religious texts justify his crime? Because you can look at a lot of people right. who carried out extremist right. activity, right, in the name of Christianity or right, Judaism right, right. or Hinduism or, or Islam or whatever, and everyone will find some justification for the crimes that yeah. they are committing. Sometimes it's religious, sometimes it's political, right. sometimes it's social. But why do you think that he's different? He, I think he's a true believer. Um, me, meaning, I'm not saying he's right. Obviously, he's he's wrong, but he's evil. Obviously, he's a terrible human being. A, we can all agree that. Wicked, we're talking about genocide. <laughs> but, I mean, literally genocide of anybody he doesn't agree with. But he he well, he's he, talking about territorial control, right? That is about, their mission. Yeah, and, as with just, a lot of other extremist groups, exactly. right? Exactly. Same thing with AQAP. Same thing with the Taliban. That's right. But they we don't establish have, territorial you know, control. Exactly. There's been terror groups all over the world throughout yeah. history, but they're not saying that they're trying to bring about the end of the world as we know it. That is a different category. Mm. It's what's driving this genocidal um, uh, activity. It's not just killing. Radical Islam, I would say, this, this minor, small, but, but terrible subset of Islam. They're trying to hijack Islam into saying, we're gonna, if we kill people, we can accomplish certain political objectives, mm. meaning get the get Washington to leave Iraq or get, you know, the uh, United States to cut the relations with Saudi Arabia right. or whatever. That's a political objective. We use violence to achieve that. Right. This guy doesn't think that. No, no, he's using violence to eradicate, to annihilate whole groups of people believing that if he does it, this will somehow trigger yeah. the coming of a global Islamic kingdom. This is just not anything we've ever experienced. Yeah. And our, our political leaders don't talk about that. So it leaves a lot of Americans in the dark. Why, why are these guys cutting heads off? Why are they setting people on fire? Why are they crucifying? Why are they enslaving? We've had terrorism. Well, we had 9-11. But even Al-Qaeda yeah. has distanced themselves from ISIS because they're like, well, well, we may be crazy, but those guys are nuts. I mean, that's so dangerous. Why? I guess why does it matter? I mean, if, they, if these are extremists carrying out 
horrific acts in the name of whatever they choose to say to justify right. it, why does it matter that they're using that justification in particular? Well, because I mean, they could use anything. They could. But I, I would argue that the previous administration struggled with the severity of this issue. The, President Obama clearly underestimated you know, dramatically yeah. how serious this was. He thought, well, you know, one more terror group. I mean, you know, there are JVs. I know. Right? Yeah. So why did I, without any access to classified information, why did I think it was different? Because I was listening to people who said, if you, if you read what these guys are saying, mm -hmm. this is different. I think President Obama, and I, I don't want to be partisan about it, but I just, as analytically, as a novelist, I think he had a narrative. The narrative is a, a, a fear that people might overreact to radical Islam. Well, I share that concern. Overreact in terms meaning, of... Meaning, say that every Muslim is, is, right. is a threat, and you know, we, okay, that's, that's a problem. We want to avoid that. But if you don't talk about what's motivating these people, you know, that would be like saying... Well, Hitler, you know, we've always had dictators. No, this was something unique. Adolf Hitler, and I say that, you know, as a Jew, Adolf Hitler was megalomaniacal. He didn't just want to take land. He wanted to eradicate a group of people, which meant that it wasn't just a danger to the United States and Great Britain and France and Germany, oh, Germany, obviously, but he was trying to annihilate an entire people group and building facilities to do it. That made, that was an, you, to understand him and how much danger he posed to us, you had to understand what were his real objectives. Mm -hmm. Read what he wrote. You know. So fictionally, if you take people into this world and a reporter who doesn't know this stuff, doesn't think about this stuff, and starts to come across things that's making him think, yeah. whoa, this is, a, this is not your grandfather's Oldsmobile. This is something really different. It allows a, a skeptic, a reporter, thinking, Oh, come on, the guy doesn't really believe that. Or if he, he may be saying it, but he doesn't really think. Anyway, what I think is interesting is when people read these books, and they've all been New York Times bestsellers, mm -hmm. uh, but then they start to go to other people you wouldn't expect. Like Last who? year, I got contacted by an advisor to Jordan's King Abdullah. Mm -hmm. Turns out he had just read the, the book from last year. Uh, he the was second in, of the in Washington. Yeah, yeah somebody, uh, an advisor, had read it on a flight in to meet him, mm -hmm. and gave it to him and said, "Your Majesty, you need to read this novel." Mm -hmm. And he's like, "Why? Why do I? Because you're in it." What do you mean I'm in it? It's a it's a novel. I know, but you're a named character. Hmm. Now that was a risk. I I made Jordan's King Abdullah an actual character in the series. The real the King name Abdullah has. Yeah. King Abdullah the uh second. -huh. Why would I do that? Yes. <laughs> I'm either insane or you can't make up King Abdullah. Yes, I'm a fiction writer, but he is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. He has uh, the strategic alliance with the United States. Mm -hmm. He has a peace treaty with Israel. He's the, the former head of Jordanian special forces, mm -hmm. and he's actively fighting ISIS. That is an ally you'd have to make up, right? That's the kind of, that's the dream you ally. You made up the head of ISIS. Well, you know, yes, I did. I can't make, I'm not trying to that literally. That wasn't bad enough for you? Uh, no, I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> Make him worse. <laughs> no, you can't make him worse. But there's a lot we don't know about him. I know, it, it was odd, but I just couldn't make up an ad, someone like Abdullah. Hmm. But it's a risk, because in some of the series, ISIS is trying to overthrow Jordan. He's mm -hmm. trying to, they're trying to assassinate in, in the novels. We should make clear. They're, in the well, book. no, they're, they're really trying to do it in real life, but they haven't done it like I pull off in this novel. Hmm. They're trying to kill him. They, they, Jordan, 
ISIS in real life has declared war on Jordan, but they haven't yet accomplished it. So the king could have banned me from the kingdom having read this book. Instead, he invited my wife and me to come for five days and meet with him multiple times, mm -hmm. meet with his generals, and essentially see how he's working to protect the kingdom of Jordan and work with the American alliance mm -hmm. against Daesh, against ISIS. That was a fascinating week. Like what you, did you take away from that? What oh did you my learn gosh. about how they're approaching this? And is it different, all that different, to the way the Americans are approaching? Well, one, he was itching to get into battle even more and yeah. was having trouble persuading the Obama the administration. Yeah. We need more um, helicopters. We need more weapons. We're ready to go. Yeah. But Americans don't support a ground war. Well, the last pre president didn't. Um, no, I mean Americans. We, well, the American public. Yeah, but the American public doesn't want to see without warning happen. If, if you don't win there, after all this effort, now we're going to let a genocidal force take over the very country, Iraq, where we put so much blood, sweat, and tears? No, Americans do not support that. They're cautious about ground activity, but they'd rather win there than fight on our own streets. Mm -hmm. So if that's the choice, yeah, fight there. The king wants to do it, and he did not really... I don't want to put words in his mouth. My perception was that there was a frustration level that the Obama administration had underestimated the threat to begin with and then was sort of taking half measures. Yeah, we're going to fight it, but we've got other things. We're not going to put a lot of forces. Why? Because President Obama had made this big commitment to the country. I'm taking my forces out. Right. We're not going to be there. That created a vacuum. And into that very vacuum, ISIS emerged. And, uh, and again, you have a choice. It's pretty simple. You either fight ISIS there and win, yeah. or you fight them on our streets and be fair, God forbid. We can probably trace that vacuum all the way back to the war in Iraq. You could, but at, by, back in by 2011, things, in were, things were quiet. And when we pulled all, that's why the president, President Obama, pulled our forces out because he said, we're done, we've won. There's small mop up operations, they can take care of it. Um, so, Anyway, that was my takeaway, that yeah. the king was itching. What an it, incredible it, meeting to have had, though. It was. We had lunch with him at the with palace. Him like that. Because they, of course, have been dealing with their own issues. That's right. Um, they had, the a, they had a pilot uh, captured by ISIS, was burned alive mm -hmm. on videotape. I mean, this is very personal for his majesty. Um, and here's, a, here's a, our most faithful Sunni Arab ally. Why did the king have time to read my book on the last trip to Washington? Because President Obama had canceled his meeting with with Abdullah, and you think I, I have no idea why, but when you have a, a key Arab Sunni ally come and meet with you, a king for crying out loud, you should meet with him. I, you know, I can't think of a single justification for not meeting with him, but he didn't. And I guess I really owe the president a thank you note because president it created Obama? Obama because it created time on the king's schedule. Uh, to read my book. Do you, um, when you take a look around you, because obviously a lot of these issues are uh, very easily relatable to the headlines that we're yeah. seeing. I mean, it's fiction that right. you are writing uh, with real characters in it, sprinkled through one. it, I guess. Yes. <laughs> uh, is that the only real one? It's just it's the, the only one? real one, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so how, um, how do you kind of process the headlines around you? Do you seek inspiration for new novels and new work? Or uh, in mm -hmm. some cases, as I know, 
Fox News host once called you sort of a modern-day Nostradamus yeah, because, well. unfortunately, some of the things you've written about previously have come true. That's true. I, yeah, and I don't, I don't want that. I'm not trying to predict things. Uh, I'm trying to write about worst-case scenarios. Mm -hmm. The theme in my novels is this. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Mm -hmm. If you don't really understand your enemy, you, you can get caught by things you would have never imagined that they would want to do, try to do, be able to do. We were blindsided in 1941 by Imperial Japan. We, we didn't understand what they wanted, so we never imagined they would try to get to Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. But they did. They blindsided us. 9-11. Bin Laden told us exactly what he wanted. We didn't believe him. We didn't take it seriously. So we were blindsided here in New York City and in the country in Washington. And I fear that if we have leaders that don't take this threat seriously, we could be blindsided again. And so... Do you think that, that President Trump is taking it as seriously as you'd like to see? I do. He, he's the first president who's, who's using the term radical Islamic terrorism. You think that helps? Well, yes and no. Let me uh, briefly... President George W. Bush never used the term. Mm -hmm. President Obama didn't. Why? Because they didn't want to offend the Muslim world. That's a good. That's a good motive. But you have to help the country understand that we're not talking about the vast majority of Muslims, but we are talking about a small subset, small but dangerous, that they think they're being motivated by their version of Islam. Mm -hmm. You can Does make it the distinction. What they think? It does. Why? Because, because if you don't understand someone's motive, you don't understand what they're going to try to do. Any trial, any trial of any criminal, you, you determine means, motive, and opportunity. by Christianity because he's certainly not representative of all Christians. Fair, I guess, do we, fair enough. Do we, need to, do we need to make sure that we understand why crazy people believe that they're, the things that they're doing are well, right? Well, most importantly, you have to take... Uh, you have to take measures to protect yourself mm -hmm. from crazy people and to stop them before they attack. So, but if you if you take somewhere in the, in President Obama's concern about not offending the Muslim world, he didn't ultimately take seriously that this was a genocidal group. Hmm. Otherwise, he would never would have called them a JV squad. Now, who has suffered most? Muslims. They're the ones dying in the largest numbers in Syria and Iraq. So it's not some anti-Muslim statement to, or, or analysis to say this group of people who call themselves Muslims but have this genocidal view, mm -hmm. this is serious. We have to stop them and work with our Muslim allies to stop them. Because if you ignore it, which I'm not saying the President, President Obama ignored it, but he certainly wanted it not to be a serious issue. He thought it wasn't a big deal, and he treated it like not a big deal. Mm. But in the end, his own administration a year ago this week had to admit this is genocide. Now, genocide has specific legal definitions, and for Congress and the president to say that's really what this is, it shows you how serious it is. And it's Muslims who are dying most. Yes, Christians. Yes, Yazidis. So it didn't help to, to misanalyze, to misunderstand this threat. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help the American people know why do we need to send our troops into harm's way? Aren't we just done with this? Mm -hmm. I wish, but we're not yet. And we certainly can't let genocide 
come to our own shores. Do you, um, you've been watching the headlines, you've been seeing the way that Mr. Trump has been responding to uh, the way that he believes he can keep Americans safe. This travel ban right. is one of those tools. Right. Um, and of course is in its own legal mire right now. But what right. do you make of that? Do you, right. do you think that that is effective from the things that you've learned? You clearly talk to people in the intelligence community and, and have mm -hmm. an understanding of how this works. Yeah, I think several yeah. things uh, that the president is doing are the right things. Now remember, this is a president that has no foreign policy experience. He has no national security experience. Mm -hmm. He is using the term radical Islam, but he should give a major speech to define that, what we don't mean and what we do mean. Since oh, no president... like to see him do that? Absolutely, because... No president ever used the term. Mm -hmm. So you and I might know what he means, but we can't assume, he should not assume, that every American knows. Mm -hmm. Once you define it, then you can say, this is why you need to do extra vetting of people coming from Syria, coming from Libya, mm -hmm. coming from Yemen, because these are failed states that are, that are rife with radical, violent Islamism. And once you understand what it means, it doesn't mean everyone coming is a threat, but we've got to make sure... Like, that makes sense. Mm. Last year, 37 people in the United States, 37, were arrested on ISIS plot charges. Mm -hmm. 37, that's three a month. The president should say that number, right? Because if you think, well, why do we need to do extra vetting? Isn't it unfair? No, it's not unfair. Every country should protect itself. But if people realize that three people a month are being arrested for having... For, for being engaged in ISIS plots, allegedly, but there, many of them are being convicted, right? That's serious. ISIS used to be just al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now they're recruiting from 120 countries. Now they've killed more than 1,200 people um, outside of Iraq and Syria. So protecting ourselves at our borders is critical. Uh, increasing, uh, improving vetting is critical. Mm -hmm. Um, going on offense, the president has asked for a new war plan from the Pentagon to go defeat ISIS. Good. He's increasing the defense budget to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. That's good. He just met with the Saudi deputy crown prince. He met with the Jordanian king. Uh, so he's working with Muslim allies. Mm -hmm. Next week, next Monday, 68 foreign ministers are coming to Washington to meet with Secretary of State Tillerson to talk about how do we do a better job of fighting ISIS. So these are all moves in the right direction. There's a seriousness mm -hmm. coming. The Saudis, I mean, the Deputy Crown Prince just said how anxious he was in the previous administration. He didn't feel like the last administration was serious about the Iran threat and the ISIS threat. Not that they were doing nothing, but that the Saudis and others want to do more. So the do you think the Saudis should have been on the travel ban list? No, no, and, but that's an interesting question, right? You had 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi, but that was 16 years ago. They've worked with us closely to improve their own intelligence uh, uh, gathering and their cooperation with us. Yeah. So that, you know... Do you think, like, Pakistan or Afghanistan should have been on the list? I'm uh, looking to not, countries that were actual, where yeah, people have actually entered the United States See, and tried but, or, right. or succeeded. No, you're in absolutely right in terms of the question. Because the 37 number that you gave, correct me if I'm wrong, that doesn't include people, that's not all people who came from those six countries. Th that's true, that's true. So here's, here's the reason why those countries are on the list. Yeah. It's not that because they're from countries that have done terrorism in the past necessarily, because you would add Pakistan, Saudi, Afghanistan, Iraq to it. The question is whether since 9-11 and since these attacks, those governments have worked with us to properly um, share intelligence 
and improve our understanding of who's trying to apply to come into our country. And those countries, according to the intelligence officials that I've spoken to, have made improvements, the Saudis, the Pakistanis. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing Pakistani attacks in the United States or Saudis. Um, but in countries that are failed states, like the governments are in or near collapse, you have to ask yourself, how, how could they possibly know who's coming? Mm -hmm. And until we know that they know and that we know who's coming, it just makes, it's just prudent mm -hmm. to, uh, to protect ourselves. It's fascinating. Lest, I still can't believe that we're talking about a novel, by the way. This is a political thriller. <laughs> I have to say, you said you were a failed political uh, communications <laughs> guy. I think it sounds like you're getting your message across loud and clear if you've got King Abdullah calling well, and inviting who, you. Well, it turns out, out that once I went into the entertainment world, uh, <laughs> that started catching people's attention. And that's, that's one of the reasons I did it. You can write an op-ed. You can give a speech in Washington. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these guys will read a novel on a plane uh, that they won't sit down and read, you know, somebody's op-ed. And so this creates a very different environment. You don't think, you just think differently. And yeah, if you're taking it in as a story rather yeah, than a headline. And, uh, I just want to wrap up because you've sure. got two, um, two sort of call-outs, it sounds like, to President Trump. You want to see him make a major speech. Yes. And you want to see to him to define. Groups. To in define what yeah. what is the problem and what isn't the problem. There you go. And we do need to uh, send troops on the ground there. Um, once the American people understand it's we fight them and win there, or they're coming to these streets without warning. Without warning. It's out now. It's out now. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank I appreciate you. it. It's my honor. It's thank a pleasure. You. Thanks for joining us, guys. Stay here for your latest live streams. I'm Omna Navaz. I'll see you back here soon.